and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 1 this morning, but we are jumping back into uh, Paul's letter to the Colossian church. We've already covered chapters 1 as well as chapter 2, and we're going to be starting chapter 3 this morning. But to give you just a brief recap, we've seen thus far Paul defend the gospel from the false teaching of legalists that would mix earning righteousness through adherence to the law, but also to things that were outside of the law, the elemental principles of this world, as he put it. Uh, he wanted to mix those with the grace of Christ, and Paul expanded on why that is an error, but also through that shows the absolute supremacy of Christ over all things in this world. But specifically for the purpose of the Colossian church, he focuses in on the supremacy of Christ in salvation and that adding anything to the purity of the gospel of Jesus does not strengthen it. Instead, it reduces it truly to the doctrine of demons, to the condemnation of anyone who believes it. And so Paul exhorts the Colossian church to cling to Christ and to Christ alone for salvation, to live out the new life through faith in Jesus alone. And so as we jump into chapter 3, we're actually going to see a transition here to where he goes from talking about just simply what salvation, what justification is, to actually Paul wants to spend the rest of the book dealing with what does the Christian life look like. And in the first four verses of chapter 3, he really lays a foundation for what the Christian life is built upon and how the Christian life comes out of this adherence to true faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so if these legalistic notions from chapters 1 and 2, these false teachings, are rejected, it brings with it another temptation when you reject them. And that is the temptation to believe that no obedience is involved in the life of following Jesus Christ, that no changes really take place. And this antinomianism or this thought that we are actually to live against the law of God comes into your mind. And that if you don't do anything to earn your salvation, then nothing also needs to be done in keeping your salvation. Not that you keep your salvation, but that there are evidences in your life that you are actually saved. The false teaching that Paul deals with here in chapter 3 is the false teaching that through the grace of Christ, you actually have a license to sin. In Romans chapter 5, the thought was that the more that you sin, the larger grace looks in your life. So God would actually have us to sin more because the more that we sin, the greater the grace of Jesus Christ looks. And of course, Paul begins Romans chapter 6 verse 1 saying, by no means can that be true. In the Greek, it's the harshest form of no. Meganoito is the way that it's said in Greek. It actually means that it couldn't even be in the realm of possibility for that to be true. And Paul answers the question as to why can't that? that be true in Romans 6? He says, because you who have died with Christ now live under the power of his resurrection. Walking in Christ gives the experience of freedom from the condemnation of sin and a brand new vision of walking our redemption out by living our faith in Jesus Christ every day. Through the resurrection and our faith in that resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are raised to life that we didn't have before. 
We're raised to live by the power of the Holy Spirit that we didn't have before. And so when you are raised from the dead, you seek life rather than death. And so the changes that will happen in your life come because your view of the world and the way that you live in it are going to be forever changed. I want to begin by reading verse 1. The apostle writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Number one this morning, I want you to see in the text that Christians measure by God's standard. Christians measure by God's standard. Salvation begins with God and is gifted from above. And so the root, the anchor of what he's talking about there in verse 1 is actually the authority of God through Christ in your life. When he says that Christ is now seated at the right hand of God, what he's saying is that Christ is seated at a place of authority. But if you'll remember when we were dealing with Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20 of chapter 2, he asks an if-then question. If you are a Christian, then this will be true. And he obviously begins chapter 3 with the same mentality. He's saying, if then you have been raised with Christ. And he means that for two purposes. The term for if can actually also be translated as since you have been raised with Christ. But that doesn't change the impact of the statement. It is an invitation to consider the implications of your faith in the gospel. Regeneration or the born again experience has an impact that necessitates and brings necessarily change in your life. The outcome of faith will be a life in which you serve God and seek to obey him, albeit imperfectly. It will still be the mission in your life to seek obedience to God. But then secondly, it is an invitation to consider if you've been raised with Christ. If he says, since you have been raised with Christ, this is going to be true, then it's bringing your attention to ask the question, well, what if it isn't true? And that's why the translation if exists. What is the impact on being raised to new life in Christ? And the rest of the verse speaks of the authority of God in Christ over you through faith. So if you have been raised with Christ, you live under a new authority. You live under the authority of Jesus Christ. Seeking the things that are above notes the source of salvation that Jesus provides. You did not save yourself. And so it's only logical that if you didn't save yourself in salvation, you're not going to live for yourself. You are not the ultimate authority in your life. He who saved you would be the ultimate authority in your life. Friend, you cannot do anything or earn anything to provide for yourself the salvation that you need. This serves as a present reminder of everything that Paul taught in the first two chapters. He's basically summing it up right here. Since salvation is the work of Christ alone, He is the supreme source of salvation, and it is faith in Him alone that saves then you will not live seeking the things of this world. You will seek the things from where Christ came. You will seek the things that are above. 
And so Paul turns your attention away from what he previously in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 called the elemental spirits of the world, those things that you are tempted to seek salvation in towards the presence of God, which transcends this world. The book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man that ever existed, said you will only find the purpose of life when you get over the sun, since there is nothing new under the sun. And so since salvation transcends creation to the very creator, therefore your vision for life must go beyond created things and must return to the designer of your life. And that is God. He is the designer of your life. Think about it this way. Jesus descended to this world from the realm of heaven to save you. Therefore, since your salvation is not of this world. Salvation is of God. The purpose for your life is not of this world either. The statement in verse 1 there, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, is of course another statement of the supremacy of Christ over all of creation. He is supreme in salvation, and since He is supreme in salvation, that means He is supreme in authority. This is an illusion to Psalm 110, which says he would be seated at the right hand of God. It reveals that Jesus fulfills these Old Testament prophecies of an authoritative Messiah. Since Jesus rose from the dead, putting sin and death to open shame, he now has taken his place as the authority over all things. And so in this present era, this authority is submitted to by who? By those who trust Him. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you then are part of His body, the church of Jesus Christ. And you are the ones in this world that submit to Christ in all things. All those who trust in Christ will necessarily submit to the authority of Christ. And we reveal that trust by practically submitting to that authority in everyday activity in our lives. And so Christians then, because of this, must not view the world the same way other people view the world. If you are a Christian, you simply cannot view the world the same as someone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. Christians live under a different authority. Christians seek the things above and Christ being at the right hand of God is about more than just something that you agree with. I think many of you think that the authority of Christ in your life is just something that you assent to. It's just something that you kind of intellectually, well, I agree. Christ, he is the ultimate authority in my life. And then you walk out into your life and you live under your own authority. You do whatever comes naturally to you. You live in such a way as to say Christ is your authority, but live under the standard of a different authority, a worldly authority, an authority that is only sourced in this world and ultimately what we all will be deceived to believe apart from the power of faith in the Holy Spirit in our lives is we will submit to autonomous authority, our own authority. That's not the Christian worldview. This is about a view of what is presently and what is to come in our lives, as well as what is to come in this world. The Christian worldview encompasses everything. It answers the question, what am I here for? 
But it also answers the question, what is everything outside of me ultimately about? And faith in Jesus Christ changes the answer to both of those questions. I am here to submit to the authority of Christ in all things. And all of this exists to bring ultimate glory to God the Son through the way that I deal with it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 takes this idea further to state that through Christ we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. He does kind of chronology of salvation. He says, and raised us up with Him, with Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. And you say, how does that work out? Well, this is an allegorical statement of the present reality of your life. In other words, the standards of this world do not factor in to the life that you live anymore. It is the view from above that matters. It is the view from the throne of Jesus Christ that matters to you. And everything in your life must be brought into submission to that reality because spiritually speaking, your life transcends this world. Your life goes to the throne of Jesus Christ where your authority is from. This is the antithesis of unbelief. It's the opposite. Unbelief puts you in a closed and hopeless system by which you can only trust that which is of this world. So if you don't believe the gospel, the only thing that you can seek is this world. You can't seek the things that are above apart from Jesus Christ. And so when someone that doesn't believe the gospel disagrees with your worldview, why are you so surprised? They can't fathom what it is to view the world that a, the way a Christian does. They can't understand it. You say, why does my unbelieving family not understand how important my faith is to you? Because they're still blinded by sin. They can't seek the things that are above. They can only disagree with you, which will lead to them vilifying you, which will ultimately lead to them looking at you and believing at some point that you are in some way their enemy. Why? Because you serve a different king than they serve. You serve a different kingdom than they serve. They can only fill their lives with this present reality. While you, because of the salvation you have in Christ, because of the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, you can only seek the things that are above. To do opposite would be to deny your very faith. And if Christ rose from the dead, that would be a foolish thing to do. By the way, he did rise from the dead. Faith in Christ revolutionizes your worldview to transcend the physical realm, to go to the realm of God. Christians do not and cannot viewed the world the same way non-Christians do. And so my question is, why are you trying so hard to view the world the same way non-Christians view the world? So many of you are exhausting yourselves trying to view the world the same way unbelievers view the world. Why would you want the cheap seats when you've been invited into the box seats of God? Christians are free to measure the world by God's standard. But make no mistake, you are not free to measure and appeal to the world by whatever means they decide 
we must. I see so many people compromise their faith because they are afraid of people. The only reason anyone compromises their faith is out of fear of man. You are afraid someone won't like you anymore. You are afraid someone won't talk to you anymore. I see so many parents in their 40s and their 50s, even into their 60s, compromising their faith because their children have chosen unbelief and they won't call you if you don't follow them down the treacherous road that leads to hell. That's a fool's bargain. Why would you do that? Why would your standard be the standard of those who cannot understand faith in Jesus Christ? We seek the things that are above, and through that, we measure by a standard given by God in Christ and in His Word to the church for the good of the world around you. It doesn't help anyone for you to compromise your belief. It doesn't help them at all. They can get mad at you. They can vilify you. They can hate you. But the most unloving thing you could do is in the face of that, compromise your faith to appease them. We do not kneel to the world. We kneel to God for the sake of the world. It's like bargaining with a two-year-old about dinner. When you compromise, you know how foolish that is? You know what a terrible standard that sets? To build your life around the whims of a child who cannot understand the wisdom of adulthood. And some of you are like, well, I do that too. Well, you're just going to create hellacious demons all around you, aren't you? <laughs> Jesus makes... The authority of God, not just attainable for you, a reality for you. He descended to this world, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death where he took the penalty for sin, for your sin, onto himself, and then rose from the dead, winning that victory over sin and death, and then sitting at the right hand of the Father in full authority over our lives, through our lives. An unbelieving world is held accountable and reached for the sake of the gospel through that posture and that posture alone. When you live by God's design, you not only understand the reality of the world around you, you understand what real love and real authority look like. Look at John 17, verses 18 through 19. Jesus is praying for Christians. And he says to the Father, as you sent me into this world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be what? Sanctified in truth. Not sanctified in error. Not sanctified by the lies of the enemy. Not sanctified by the sins of this world. Sanctified by what? By truth. We learned last week, what is truth? Truth is just reality. As Jesus Christ was sent down into this world, we are sent out into the world with a heavenly perspective of our design, but as well as our purpose and mission in this world. And so the implications of the gospel on your life are not unrealized and for the future. 
Because I think that's the way some people view faith. They pray a prayer, they come to faith in Jesus, and then you're just waiting for eternity. No. That means that the implications of the gospel in your life are unrealized implications. God doesn't want you to live that way. God wants you to live under his design. God wants you to realize the power of the gospel in your life. You must now seek the things that are above so that Jesus can send you out into this world sanctified by your truthful Christian worldview proclaiming the salvation of your authoritative king. Jesus. And that is why, number two, this morning, only the heavenly minded are any earthly good. Only the heavenly minded are any earthly good. Look at verse two. Set your minds on things that are above. Some of you need to underline that. Your minds are so filled with this world. Your minds are so filled with just right, what's right in front of your face. Your minds are so filled with idolatry. You cannot even imagine what that would be like. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Friend, I must tell you something that many people don't tell you about salvation, about Christianity when you first come to faith in Christ. Faith in Christ necessarily puts you in opposition to the world. Necessarily does. There's no other avenue. There's nothing else Christianity could do except for put you in opposition to the world. I have found that the more people focus on living like everyone else around them, the less they seek the things that are above. And isn't that just logical? And so why are you so worried about what everyone around you is doing? Why are you so worried about measuring up to worldly implications? Why are you so worried about the expectations that unbelievers, the people around you will put on you? But sometimes it's worse than that. Sometimes it's the earthly expectations of those who claim faith in Christ yet have none. And they will lead you to be consumed by the things of this world. And that is leading you down a path of the antithesis of discipleship. Friends, we must be honest, we are often more committed to the principles that define unbelievers than we are to the principles that define life in Christ. Faith in Jesus will make you countercultural. If you are surrounded by unbelievers and you are a Christian, expect that the most important things in your life will make no sense to them and don't change. Faith in Jesus gives you that Christian worldview that I mentioned, but it only comes through faith in Jesus. Sure, the facts of Christianity can be understood by anyone. That's by design. The facts. But to grasp it, you have to have it. Unbelievers can't understand the Christian life because they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't new. St. Augustine wrote this sentence, you must believe so that you can understand. St. Anselm later summarized Augustine. He said, I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but rather I believe in order that I may understand. Why is this true? Simply put, because the Christian faith is supernatural. Faith requires the supernatural regeneration from the Holy Spirit. 
God makes you alive in Christ through faith. Therefore, the only way to obey this imperative that Paul gives, set your minds on the things that are above, that's an imperative. He doesn't say if you feel like it. He doesn't say if you have time. He doesn't say if you want to graduate to Discipleship 301. No, he just makes a statement, no qualification. This is the Christian mindset. There isn't another one. The only way to do that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Then you must be prepared for those without faith in Jesus Christ to misunderstand you a lot. To be a Christian is more than an intellectual belief or intellectual understanding. Galatians 2.20 furthers this idea. The Apostle Paul writing again. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. No, he says, I am dead. He's saying faith means that Christ was on the cross paying the penalty for my sin. He's my substitute. Therefore, it is as if I am up there with him. Since that is true, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live in the flesh, what? I live by faith. Does that look like change? It is. That is a revolutionary vision. That's the heavenly mindset. I view the world as though I died with Christ. And then Romans 6 comes back and says, as though I live with Christ. Because it's all of Christ. Christians can only then view the world through Christ. That's it. We don't have another option. Some of you are looking for one. Some of you wish there was one. Some of you think you formed one. You think you figured it out. How to be of the world and of heaven at the same time. Well, that's called just being dead in sin. You haven't figured it out. In our contemporary era, Christians have been seemingly discipled to be concerned with being too Christian. You don't want to be too Christian, do you? And that's where the phrase, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, comes from. Well, friends, that's not the Christian worldview. That's poor discipleship. It is faulty thinking. It is fearful thinking. The opposite is true. Only the heavenly minded can be any earthly good because God commanded us to be heavenly minded. Set your mind on things that are above. What do you think that means? This past Sunday, this is what some of you were waiting for. During the Super Bowl, there was a commercial. And I've seen a bunch of these commercials. They're all terrible. I know some of you like them, but they're all bad. They're all faulty. The ad campaign, he gets us. Hobby Lobby paid for it. Nate Schloman said Hobby Lobby is the Bud Light of home decor. Some of you, somebody's going to explain it to you on the way home. But controversy erupted because they made an attempt at evangelism. The problem was that it presented a faulty view of the love of Christ that did not in any way communicate the gospel according to God's standard. Rather, the attempt was made to make Christians palatable 
to non-Christians. Rather than setting the mind on that which is above, it sought to set the mind on that which is of earth. It failed the cause of Christ because it sought to reconcile things that are necessarily offensive to God as that which we can find middle ground and compromise on. Seeking that which is above will put you at enmity with the world. And friends, in opposition to what their entire mission statement was, Jesus teaches righteous hatred toward sin. Jesus teaches you to hate sin. And so to make a blanket statement, Jesus didn't teach hate, is flawed at best. It is a lie from hell at worst. But he taught you a righteous form of hatred. Why would you hate anything? Well, you would hate anything. That brings about the wrath of God for all eternity, and that is what sin does. There are consequences to unbelief, and that consequence is eternal condemnation under the wrath of God. Wrath. There's a lot of hatred in that wrath. Hatred towards sin. The heavenly mindset is one that would teach repentance, not pithy sayings that don't apply to reality, that defame the name of Christ. Christians have a God-entranced vision of all things. The apostle writes in Colossians there, you have died. That happening is what brings about repentance in your life. You die to your life of sin. You die to the world of sin. And then the text says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? He's talking about union with Christ. And that union requires the death of sin, and that's what the cross gives. It happened on the cross. That union will draw a stark contrast to your vision of the world and your vision of life. I mean, the New Testament is filled with statements of how countercultural Christianity is in a sinful world. First Peter chapter 2, he writes of the Christians that have been dispersed in modern-day Turkey. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter explains to them that this is not just because they are not in Jerusalem anymore. They are sojourners and exiles in any part of this world because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews eleven thirteen makes a similar statement about, about those who died for their faith. He said, these all died in their faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having, and this is the important part, acknowledge that they were what? Strangers and exiles on the earth. He says, those that made the ultimate sacrifice and died because of their faith were simply acknowledging I'm a stranger in exile on the earth. That's why death is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Hell is. And those people were filled with faith. They said, I'd rather die for my faith and wake up in heaven than live condemned to hell for eternity. Ephesians 2.19 puts it in a contrast He says, so then, you Christians are no longer strangers and aliens. Note the contrast there. Sojourners, exiles, strangers and exiles. You are no longer strangers and exiles, but what? 
fellow citizens with the saints and members of where? The household of God. He says, yeah, you might be a stranger in exile on earth, but you're a citizen of heaven, and that is far better. Without Christ, we are strangers and aliens to God. In Christ, that is no longer our story. In Christ, we are citizens with the saints. We are members of the household of God. So all of your striving then to be and feel at home in this world is a denial of what you are in Christ. Friend, if you feel like a world filled with sin just isn't your home, that's because your home is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, you can never feel at home among unbelief. If you're a follower of Christ, you will never feel at home among unbelievers who have their great treasure in their worldly gain. Their great treasure is a closed worldview where this is all that there is, where their great treasure is sinful ideology. My home is the kingdom of God because that is where my life is currently hidden. And that is where my mindset must constantly be drawn in this world. And so what do you do? Number three, live according to the future vision of faith. Live according to the future vision of faith. The future factors greatly into the present. How do I know that? Look at verse four. When Christ, who is your life, I love the way Paul makes these statements. I, Paul is very sarcastic, just like Jesus was. And I love it. It's my love language. And so Paul, he begins with this if-then statement. And then here, he has added all of this up to what you are in Christ. He finishes verse 3 with your union with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he begins verse 4 by making the statement that I think was meant and is meant by the Holy Spirit to draw conviction to my stony heart to say, when Christ, who is your life... What he's saying is, it's true, isn't it? Think about it. Is it true? Is he your life? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. This is the unrealized part. This is the future part. This is where the investment of life in Christ finds its ultimate fulfillment at the return of Christ. But when he makes that statement, Christ who is your life, that is a priority statement. That is him begging the question, are my priorities right? That means that the primary motivator and focus of your life is Jesus Christ. He is whom your life is built around. This is what drives you to build the life that you have. He is who you seek. He is who you love. Your life then, if this is true, is defined by your faith in Jesus Christ. And friend, I will tell you that is in direct opposition to the messages that you are inundated with 
every day by all forms of media, by all influence in society. And my fear for some of you is you are buying the lies of the world. And to put it simply, Christ is not your life. There are other things that matter more to you. And that, of course, begs that question from verse 1, if. But then he says, Christ, who is your life, appears. And so understand, he says, when Christ appears. Grammatically speaking, what he's doing there is he's not saying if. He's saying it's a foregone conclusion. It's as if it has already happened. That's how certain the return of Christ, the triumph of the gospel, that's how certain all of it is true. He's writing about it as if it is present tense because it's going to happen. But that statement offers conclusion to the phrase hidden with Christ from verse 3. It will not be forever hidden is his point. That word appears can also be translated as revealed. This is a future view of the fulfillment of your faith. This is about the resurrection of believers to eternity. This is about the fulfillment of my citizenship in heaven. Right now, 2 Corinthians says, I am an ambassador for Christ. I'm a citizen of heaven, but I'm at an outpost for Christ in this world, which is not my home, but there will be a day where I'm called home. The Christian faith will not return void. The authority of Christ over this present age stretches throughout all eternity. And the glory of Christ will be revealed. You also will appear with him in glory. Finishes verse 4. Will. Not maybe. I love that he doesn't even say, I hope so. He doesn't say, well, if our investment pans out in the end. This is guarantee. No question. It's happening. How can you endure this life filled with hope and faith? Because it's hard. Life is overwhelmingly difficult. I think that in my state and in some of your, I know are walking through darker days than I am. I know that. And I've walked with some of you through some days where you didn't know if you would endure. So how do you endure? Because you know my life is hidden with Christ. My hope is hidden with Christ. My faith is hidden with Christ. My worldview is hidden with Christ. But one day it will appear. It will be revealed. Everyone will see it. He is Lord of all. That's why Paul, and I'm going to read an extended section of Scripture right now, but in Romans chapter 8, that's why with such confidence, Paul could write this starting in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or the kitchen sink? 
as it is written, for our sake, this is our temptation to say, for our sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It is a temptation to get hopeless in the face of tribulation. And Paul says in verse 37, I love it, he doesn't even qualify. No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you want bulletproof faith? That's what it looks like. There is ultimately nothing that can defeat us. If you're a follower of Christ, death itself is powerless to defeat the Christian because we have the resurrection power of Christ. Kill me, I will get up. Why are you then so trepid, fearful, and living out every part of your faith in front of the world? What are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Who are you trying to please? Who is your authority? Friends, you can only lose if your faith is fake. How will people come to faith in Christ if they can't see the legitimacy of your faith? Because the entire Christian life requires belief and the triumph and return of Christ. One more scripture. Revelation 19, 15 through 16 paints a beautiful picture of the return. He says, from his, Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has written a name, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, He gets us. I believe that the sword is representative of the authority as well as the triumph of the gospel in this present age. But the rod is also representative of His condemning authority for all who do not believe. Friend, do you know why your faith is going to endure you? It is because of the name written on Jesus' thigh. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He alone has the victory. He is reigning right now, and He will reign forever. Therefore, seek the things that are above. Therefore, Set your mind on things that are above because that is where our King reigns. Trust Him and live for Him. A few application points. First, measure your life by God's standards. Don't believe the lies of this world. They will tell you to live for many things that will waste your life, that will return void, and will not echo through eternity. Do not measure your life by this world. Live, secondly, in opposition to the world's standards. you got to figure out 
What is it that they want me to live for that I can't? What is it that they want me to live for that I not only need to avoid, but that I need to be against and I need to live in opposition to it? Thirdly, prepare to live misunderstood because of your faith. This is petrifying for some of you. You're afraid people aren't going to understand. Well, I'm just going to tell you straight up. They're not. Live it anyway. And you're doing it for their sake. Do not kneel to the world. Kneel to Christ. Then finally, flaunt. Yes, flaunt. The triumph of Christ for the sake of others. I kneel to no man. I kneel to Christ and Christ alone. Because He alone is King. 